This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. This is a podcast about climate action and solutions, not doom and gloom. We are proud to amplify the voices of women environmental leaders whose work on the front lines is bringing innovation and concrete solutions to the challenges of climate change. These women know firsthand the effects of climate change, and they are committed to a livable, sustainable, and equitable world for us all. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination, because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. You don't need to be an environmentalist. Begin by being informed. And with that, we invite you to join us for today's conversation with another inspirational woman environmental leader. Joining us today is Toby Hertzlick, the visionary founder of Biomimicry for Social Innovation, an organization created to harness the brilliance of nature's design principles and weave them together for leadership development and training for creative problem solving, addressing social change and the challenges of climate change. Toby brings with her a wealth of experience spanning over three decades, devoted to guiding organizations through transformative leadership training. She is a respected figure within Living Systems Leadership Faculty and a distinguished trainer at the Rockwood Leadership Institute. Toby also plays a pivotal role as key faculty in Biomimicry's esteemed 3.8 Professional Certification Program. In essence, Toby's mission revolves around gathering together individuals, communities, and institutions to explore and partner with nature in harmonious ways that will serve us all. It is my great pleasure to extend a warm welcome to Toby Hertzlick. Toby, welcome to Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. Let's get started with biomimicry. We could say biomimicry has been around a long time, but could you give us a beginner-friendly perspective on what biomimicry is? Biomimicry is a design discipline that is about studying the natural world and learning about nature and her 3.8 billion years of intelligence and evolution, how nature has solved pretty much everything we're trying to solve, and then translating nature's lessons into sustainability and regenerative solutions for human challenges. And of course, biomimicry, learning from nature, is something that humans have practiced since there were humans. You know, indigenous knowledge is very much based on biomimicry. Indigenous cultures very much turn to the natural world as inspiration. And there were other designers over time, Leonardo da Vinci and others in, in the kind of more modern Western world. But the term biomimicry was coined by Janine Benyus in her book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, about 25 years ago now. Since this modern interpretation of biomimicry, there's really been a lot of uptake in the design field, in architecture, in product design, in engineering, where people are saying, how does nature do this? And looking at, for example, a leaf and studying how leaves take energy from the sun and can we design um, solar panels that work the way photosynthesis does. Or looking at how there's a, there's a famous example of the Eastgate building in Africa where there were architects who were trying to create a big office building that didn't use a lot of fossil fuels for cooling or heating 
And so they looked around in the place where they were in Zimbabwe and said, well, termites have been doing this for millions of years. Well, can we learn from how termites build their office buildings, their nests? And they emulated the termites' design principles and their strategies for heating and cooling without fossil fuels all through airflow and channels of, of um, you know, empty space in the walls. And how did the termites do this? Then they replicated that in the design of the East Case building and created a, a human infrastructure that operates the way nature's elegant solutions do. So those are just a couple of examples of how biomimicry has been in action in design and engineering and architecture. So the core idea of biomimicry is that nature has already solved many of the problems that we are grappling with energy, water filtration, food production, climate control, transportation, and adaptation for survival. And when we delve into the realm of biomimicry, the question is, what would nature do? Which is the question, how, or functionality? For example, how does nature store energy? How does nature filter water? How does nature deal with disruption? And one of the designs that I recently read about was the particularly involves owl wings, examining owl wings as a solution to mitigate the noise generated by wind turbines. Noise pollution from wind turbines is a big deal. Then owls are renowned for their ability to glide noiselessly through the air to catch their prey unawares, and the secret is in their wing structure. How exactly have owls evolved wings to accomplish this remarkable feat? And how can we utilize this adaptation for noise reduction in wind turbine design? The owl was also part of the inspiration. I love the biomimicry story about the bullet train in Japan. Oh, right, yes. Which um, it, probably many of your listeners has, had, have heard of. It was initially shaped like a bullet and went very, very fast. Huge innovation. However, when that train would go in or out of a tunnel, meaning that it was changing the ambient air density, it created a lot of turbulence and it would, it would create a sonic boom, which Japan is a very densely populated country. That was not a good thing. People didn't like that. And the, the designer who was working on the bullet train was also a bird lover. So he started thinking about, well, how do birds move more quietly? How do birds manage turbulence? And he built some aspects of the newly revised bullet train using both the owl wing technology and also the kingfisher, which is a bird that goes very, very quickly from one density into another, from air into water. And they've evolved over millions of years to not splash because the ones that splash would scare the prey away. And the ones that didn't splash would eat and would reproduce and would pass on those qualities. So... He went back and redesigned the front of the bullet train to have the exact same proportions as the Kingfisher's beak. Stop the sonic boom, goes faster using less energy. So that's a that's a classic biomimicry story. Yes, that's a classic. And there are so many fascinating examples. But switching gears, while the natural world offers captivating insights, your focus lies in the realm of human interaction. Tell us about biomimicry for social innovation what you are doing, how you're utilizing the principles, design principles of nature to guide human collaboration, networking, leadership, and community building. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that question. And yes, that's exactly right. I, like many people, became fascinated with biomimicry, 
but I, my purpose is around people. So I'm not an engineer or a designer, but I had this sense that I could learn from healthy, thriving ecosystems about how we could be more effective as healthy, thriving human systems and started asking the question, how does nature do the things we're trying to do in human systems? How does nature cooperate? How does nature communicate? How does nature build networks that can activate and amplify change quickly? How does nature withstand disruption and be adaptive in the face of big challenges that come? What can we learn from the natural world about the things that we're trying to solve as change makers and leaders in our world? So I started Biomimicry for Social Innovation with that purpose and to gather and create a a, a network and a platform and a conversation space and a research arm and an implementation arm for people who are engaged with those questions. Mm -hmm. So we've been very slowly growing over the last 10 years or so. We, we officially became a uh, not-for-profit. It's interesting. We, we got the letter that we were officially a, a 501c3 on the day of Biden's inauguration. And that letter had actually been written, sent on January 6th. So I just, I was, I'm the person, the bureaucrat in the office in the <laughs> he was looking over his shoulder saying, oh my God, we need to, we need to bring some goodness into the world and nature's intelligence could really help. So that's what we're doing. We do a lot of uh, training workshops where we gather people, very diverse leaders, some, some who are educators, some who are leading businesses, some who are doing social change. We've got a workshop coming up that has, have several, um, women from Florida who are doing voter registration and electoral work in Florida, which is very important. Educators from schools as well as adults all coming together to learn these essential principles of how nature and nature's intelligence can form us as social innovation practitioners. Um, we do a workshop that's particularly for women, a women's retreat that's coming up in September. I'm doing another workshop in partnership with Biomimicry 3.8, who are mentors and partners of mine that's called mm -hmm. nature, Discover Nature's Genius for Social Innovation. That's happening in October in Tennessee, and I'll be partnering with Dana Baumeister, mm -hmm. who designed the Arizona State University Master's Program. So again, we go into what are the deep patterns from the natural world that we can translate into human strategies? Because it's very important. One thing that makes so the social innovation application of biomimicry, really one thing that's essential to it is while if you're trying to invent a drone, you might look at a hummingbird or a dragonfly or a synthesis and build your technology based on their technology. But in social innovation, we need to look at deep patterns. People say, oh, we could be like bees where there's a queen bee who runs everything and the males are just there to impregnate her and the females do all the work. No, that is not what this is about. We, we are not bees. We are not lions. Right. However, when you look at what bees and lions and geese and starfish and octopus and bacteria and our white blood cells, and every, when you look across and say, what do all organisms have in common? What are the deep patterns that we can learn from and apply into our work? That's where this work gets very effective. And, and you may know, and many of your listeners may know who've studied biomimicry at all, there's a body of work called Life's Principles that was developed by Biomimicry 3.8 that are the 26 operating guidelines that 
all organisms do. If you're an earthling, you do these things. And they are things like building from the bottom up, cultivating cooperative relationships, adapting as conditions change, um, using feedback loops. 26 life's principles, which you could spend a lifetime studying these things. And what we've done at Biomimicry for Social Innovation, we call ourselves BSI. What we've done is we're, we're translating those principles into leadership practices so that people who are wanting to make change in the world, inspired by living systems, can adopt these practices and, and learn deeply about how they work. It's the how. How does life adapt to changing conditions? Life cultivate cooperative relationships. How does life actually use feedback loops, etc.? With the, the the assumption, the idea that as leaders, as people who are growing organizations or trying to make change in our communities or educating the next generation, if we start acting with practices that are deeply embedded with the the deep principles of the natural world then how we do our work will inherently be more regenerative, will be more sustainable, will help guide us toward the essence of climate solutions, um, sustainability over time, ways that we can improve humans' relationship with the natural world. As Janine Benius likes to say, that we can become a welcome species on Earth again in a reciprocal relationship with the environment, giving back and contributing to the healthy changes that need to happen over the next eight to 10 years. So continuing from the previous question and the approach, what would nature do? I wanted to ask you how nature responds to disruptions. We are emerging from the profound impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and disruptions seem to be nonstop. We are in a world marked by growing disruptions, heat waves, floods, fires, social disruptions, so many changes. What can you tell us from your work and experience about how we can look to nature to understand and deal with disruptions? Thank you. That's a great question, Michael. And, um, you know, one of the things that I find by practicing biomimicry is that part of its gift is that it helps us reframe our thinking and reassess situations. And when we remember that of all the organisms who've ever lived on Earth, only 1% are still here. Um, the other 99% have either gone extinct or adapted and changed their form species. Disruption has always been a part of living on Earth. So it's helpful to just remember that. It also tells us that these 1% that still survive, they're our teachers, right? They're the survivors. They, they, they live here under these same conditions as we do and have evolved successfully. So we have a lot to learn from them. Lately, since COVID and, and with everything that's going on in our social changes and with, uh, with everything that's happened since George Floyd's murder, there's just a lot of disruption and change going on. And I've been teaching the adaptive cycle quite a bit. The adaptive cycle is something that came from um, resilience thinking um, and the Resilience Alliance, it's looking at how does nature build resilience into its processes and what are the fundamental ecosystem processes that we can learn from in our own social ecological systems. 
And the adaptive cycle, if you imagine it as kind of an infinity sign, like a number eight turned on its side, these are processes all ecosystems are going through all the time. If you're kind of moving up the, the how do I describe it verbally? You've got your infinity sign, you're moving up the middle, up toward the right side. That's a growth phase. So ecosystems, you know, a forest will start with small plants and move, grow. And those small plants will hold the soil and will, will create more nutrients in the soil. And then eventually shrubs can grow. And then that creates more conditions for trees to grow. It's a growth phase. It's all focused on reproduction and growth and more and more complex relationships forming. But then as it moves up to the top of that loop, um, ecosystems can get stagnant and brittle. Those relationships can be very, very strong and a very mature forest has lots of interaction going on, but there's not a lot of new energy coming in. And they can get um, very prone to disruption. And, and often that happens. A forest fire comes through, a landslide, a flood, something disrupts the system. And then what happens is it rounds the top of that loop is disruption comes and all of that energy that's been bound up in that system gets released. It's a little bit chaotic from a human perspective. It can be very scary. In, in, in human analogies, something like a January 6th insurrection, right? That's a huge, something like a pandemic or mm-hmm. huge heat waves that are happening, you know, major logical disruptions, social disruptions, everything gets blown apart. And and everything that we thought we knew about how things should be. Oh, no, you can't work from home. You have a job. You go to work. You go to the office, right? Things get that rethought in new ways. So there's a bit of chaotic period. And then as that infinity sign, as it loops around the bottom and starts up the other side, we call that the reorganization phase. And that's when all of that energy that's been freed up can get resorted in new ways that are more in sync with, more adapted for the new conditions. And ecosystems need that. Human systems need that. Some of the things that come, lots of things can get tried out. Lots of different combinations can be experimented with. Some will stick and grow and continue to and, and loop around the cycle and start the growth phase again. Others will slough off. They're not actually working. Seeds that are planted metaphorically or literally, that don't have the right conditions to grow in will simply fall away. And then the cycle starts again. I believe that one of the things we learned from nature and one of the things that we need to consider in these times is that there are actually lots of systems and structures and ways of being and ways of working that are no longer serving us and that will not they are actually maladaptive. Some aspects of our economy, some aspects of our political processes, they're just maladaptive for these times. And they need to fall apart. And those of us who are comfortable with that and ready to release what's no longer serving us and have good mentors, you know, another thing that Janine Benyus likes to say is that we're looking for a vision of a world that works for everybody and practical pathways about how to get there. It's all around us. So as we are building our capacity to learn from nature, as these disruptions come and we're comfortable with that period of collapse and release and chaos that comes and then the 
knowing that, oh, now we can create things in new ways, that helps us become more adaptive and helps us create conditions conducive to life for the new conditions that we're, the, the new situations that we're entering as a human. So disruption happens, and but we can look at this differently. When things fall apart, we can see that there is an opportunity for new growth and that there's a lot of new energy. And the people that I interview on the show, I mean, that's exactly how they feel. They're using this energy and they sense that there's, there are new ways to deal with the problems. And I think we're also seeing a lot of that with the youth movements. Exactly. that, And, and you know, while there is a lot that's um, very unsettling and disturbing about what's going on in our world right now, there's also so much new energy emerging and so much. When I look at the list of people that you've talked to on your podcast series and what they're up to, it just brings me so much hope because I see it is happening. We are finding new forms. We are creating new innovations. We are finding ways to live more in alignment with planet. One of the things I'm involved in that's in partnership with my with my colleagues and friends at Biomimicry 3.8 is something that was started by Nicole Miller. They are called uh, Project Positive. And she's organizing big companies like Microsoft and Google and Kohler and Ford, big companies mm-hmm. to learn from how ecosystems work and especially the aspect that is about you know, natural ecosystems are very generous and they're creating benefit that serve the health of the ecosystem, but also serve us all the time. Um, cleaning air, filtering water, sequestering carbon, providing habitat for pollination and wildlife, creating cooling through shading and, and shelter for lots of organisms and each other. There's all kinds of stuff going on in ecosystems. So the idea behind Project Positive is what if we whether I'm Microsoft building a data center or Ford building a factory or a, a municipality looking at our future planning, what if we make a commitment that, that says we are going to meet or exceed that level of ecosystem benefit that the wildlands next door is doing? We're going to do it through how we build our buildings, through how we manage our development, through how we engage our community, through how we help citizens learn about how they can provide ecosystem services in their own backyards. And so instead of human development being the sacrifice zones, we actually use our big forebrains and our technological advances and our creativity to be saying, okay, if there weren't development here, and there's metrics for this now, there's ways to measure it. There's tools that humans that we can all use in our own backyards. We should be storing this much carbon. We should be filtering this much air. We should be capturing this much water and saving it for the dry times. We can do that. And so we become, we, we, we relate to the earth in a, in a partnership, more like a reciprocity. That's very exciting to me. Thank you for mentioning the other guests that I have had on the show, because most of them are working locally in their communities. And I, I wanted to ask you about, another, because that is another one of life's principles, being locally attuned. Could you speak about that and how you are using that with leadership development? I would be so happy to. In fact, I've just been really thinking about that a lot. One of, so I mentioned that we have uh, leadership practices and BSI looked at the big body of life's principles and said, how do we make this digestible for people? You could spend your whole life studying life's principles. 
And I hope many people do. I have been doing that. We translated six of those into living systems leadership practices. And one of them, the one that we teach first, we call it attune to local context. And the essence of it is that um, life solves functional needs in context. If you look at any organism, they are well adapted for that place with those conditions and with those partners and in deep, intimate relationship with what's going on right there. Learning through feedback loops, constantly taking in information, influencing the system, being influenced by the system. And, you know, as humans, there's a tendency to think that, oh, well, this thing worked in Detroit, so I can use it here in my community in Santa Fe, but Detroit and Santa Fe are very different. And so as people working locally, wanting to learn from other places, which is a great thing to do, there is still an aspect of our process that needs to be, how would nature do this here? And what would nature not do here? And so we learn, we become intimate with our place. And we come, become intimate with the, with the climate rhythms, with the resources that are available, both the, the ecosystems themselves and what the champion, we call them champion adapters of this place, how they've navigated and survived here. As well as metaphorically, like if we ask, well, what's actually the climate conditions in my organization? And what are the types of disruption that I should be anticipating in the context of this community or this network? That makes us much more um, in sync and able to respond quickly and resiliently. Another thing we learned from nature is that life is locally attuned and globally connected. So an example would be a flock of birds on a migration pattern. Over many, 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 many generations of those birds learning how to fly together in sync, they've, they've developed some simple rules. And the way flocking actually works is that if I'm a bird making this great migration, you know, for the Arctic turn, local is the whole pathway from the Arctic Circle down to the South Pole. And they do that every year. They migrate every year and back. So local means something different for them. And that may be very true for, for some of your listeners also who spend a lot of time on it. Or who are, who are spending their life with, and their work focused locally. So you can be locally attuned. And for the Arctic terns and other birds that flock, particularly flocking birds, what that means is the simple rules are, I'm going to stay, I'm going to follow the bird right in front of me. I'm going to stay a certain distance from my closest neighbors. And I'm going to follow... I'm going to stay at the same speed as my closest neighbors. That's what they're paying attention to. They don't necessarily have a GPS system that tells them where they're going. They're following these simple rules. But as a whole, they're connected to the global direction of the flock. And we can do that too. We can be working in our own communities, paying attention to how does my work connect with having a nature-positive practice that links me to protecting bio biodiversity on the planet or contributing to new climate policy that's worldwide or having changes in my local community that contribute to equity and opportunity for us to dismantle racism across this whole country and across this whole world. We can be locally attuned and globally connected in how we do our work as well.
These are great examples. And I, I love what flocking birds do, which is another example of leadership strategy. Flocking birds share leadership. Maybe one or two are in the lead, and then when they need a rest, they fall back and float on the airstream of the others, while some other birds take the lead. Do you have any other examples of leadership strategies that you know that your organizations that you work with have used? Yeah, that's the, that's a great question. And the the flocking birds, you know, we hear a lot about geese, but it's not just geese; it's many other flocking birds, and that's why it becomes a deep pattern. How can we share the effort? How can we um, learn to, you know, life does not have top-down leadership. There isn't somebody who's in charge that says, this is where we're going, or these are the decisions, or you do this. It doesn't work that way in living systems. It's much more distributed leadership. It's much more um, network and nodally based. Um, I'm thinking of some examples. Um, one of my colleagues is a man named Trey Cates. He's part of our BSI Practitioners Network. And he's also the founder of an organization called Enrhythm. And they work a lot with organizations um, doing, helping them learn how to be more regenerative, as, as do I. Trey and I just worked very closely for about a year and a half with uh, the Sierra Club with their biggest campaign to build more res personal resilience practices and team generation strategies into how do we do this work in a sustainable way, in a, in a way that's, that doesn't burn people out or be extractive because they're you know, like many, many activist organizations are working hard on urgent problems, and we need to know how to do it for the long haul. But going back to your question, one of the um, things that I've learned from Trey, and as he's building his own organization, is how they share leadership to determine what the focus of their meetings will be, and rotate who is the external-facing face to describe their work when new people are interested, rotating who's leading on certain projects, um, building that kind of collaborative, distributed leadership into all the decisions that they make. I think similar things are happening in, in a lot of other organizations I'm working with. Um, I work with the Agroecology Fund, which is a network of philanthropists, foundations, and practitioners of ecologically-based agriculture and scientists who inform that work. And they have a whole network of advisors spread around the world to help inform where the grant-making goes. So even though there's there are uh, foundations and foundation executives and individual donors, philanthropists that are actually putting money into that system, to fund ecologically-based agriculture, mostly in the global south, they are not the primary decision-makers of where that money goes. Another example of an organization that changed how they work from biomimicry is a couple of years ago, um, BSI in partnership with Dana at B38 did a big project with a rainforest protection organization called Canopy. And Canopy is led by a woman named Nicole Rycroft. She's a very innovative, out-of-the-box thinker. And the way they do their work is it's a very small organization, very nimble, and they partner with supply chain executives, supply chain decision makers from companies that use forced products as their raw materials. So that's paper companies, that's publishing companies, that's textile and fabric and fashion brands that use these 
all these soft vissoise and these tencels and these fabrics that we love so much, turns out that a lot of that is sourced from virgin rainforest. Mm-hmm. In yeah. And so Canopy's strategy is, can we build partnership with these decision makers and shift them from being destroyers of the forest to becoming champions of forest protection? And they came to us and they said, how does nature do this? Because the, the weak link in their work is that they build the, they spend a lot of time investing in building relationships with these executive decision makers, but then somebody gets their dream job in Tahiti and they move away and, they, and they've got to start all over. So they said, how does nature build collaborative partnerships that can endure in times of disruption? So what we did was we went into the biological literature, we surfaced 180 different examples of interspecies partnership. In nature, they're called mutualisms. And we asked, what are the deep patterns that all of these have in common? And out of that, many things were developed, but one is something that we call the, the, the four key criteria for enduring partnerships. And we teach that now in our workshops of these are the things that all collaborative relationships in the natural world have in common. And then we translate them in a way that humans can practice them in our own work as well. And one of them is um, there's got to be a mutual benefit for both parties that creates a reinforcing feedback loop. So you want to keep coming back for more. And you bring different things to the table. So when we talked with Canopy six months later, a year later, two years later, how are you embodying this work? What's happening? They shared stories with us about ways that they changed how they related to these potential partners because they've been really good at advocating for the partners to work with them. They could talk about what Canopy did well. They could talk about why it was good for them to work with Canopy. They could talk about how Canopy could benefit them. But what they hadn't become as masterful in is really understanding what the benefit, the most needed benefits were for their partners and how they could offer those benefits in a timely way, in an opportune way. So it might be that one example they had was that they were really advocating hard with a um, a mill to be able to use different resources than raw forest to make paper. And they wanted them to use straw. They were advocating um, other forms of agricultural waste as the raw material. And this mill was Loved this idea, but they just weren't getting on board. They weren't becoming partners. They couldn't figure out why until they really slowed down enough to learn deeply what the primary concerns were for their partner. And it turned out that that mill needed a predictable, long-term set of clients that they were going to be making this paper for, and they needed enough capital that they could make the transition. So then Canopy could go to work forming those partnerships that would help the mill because one of the criteria for partnership in the natural world is readiness. Both parties have to be ready. If I'm a flower and I've got the best nectar and the best pollen that I want to distribute the pollen and use my nectar to to be in partnership with a bee or a bug or a or a hummingbird, if I'm not open when that bee comes by or that moth, we're not going to be partners. There's a readiness. There's a timing. There's a can we do this easily? And so Canopy was enacting that readiness strategy to help build solid 
So that's just an example. Yes, that makes a whole lot of sense. What else? We're doing workshops where people who are interested can come from lots of different fields and then go back and use it in there. Those tend to be week-long workshops. We're also doing coaching and consulting with companies like what I just mentioned. And we're doing one-on-one coaching with leaders who want to learn how to bring their, their, develop their own leadership to be as strong as it can be through traditional executive coaching, but also have a nature lens on that and learn from the natural world about how to do that. We provide that service. And we're developing a new um, offering that will be launched later this year that's called Nature Positive Practices. Oh, I saw that. Yes. And what we're doing there is, you know, not everybody can come to a week-long workshop, uh, but they want to learn about how to apply biomimicry into the social innovation space. So we're taking our six living systems leadership practices and we're distilling them into short um, messages that we're still sorting out what the exact platform will be, but it will be something that people will subscribe to. And then you get in your inbox or Substack feed or through a social media post, these maybe three times a week, a little infusion of training and learning and supporting you in your own reflection about that and and perhaps engaging you if you so want to in a community of others who are doing it, who want to have people to talk to about it. Um, so you go deeply into these practices and make them be part of your daily life. Bring them into your work. Be able to think about, okay, what's how do geese do it? How do flocking birds do it? What, how is that relevant for me in my work? And what are the principles that I can practice in my new work to, to bring this more regenerative orientation, this more adaptive orientation into how I do my work around climate change, around biodiversity, around social change, around network building? I guess the only other thing I would add to that is um, we're hoping that um, one of the things that we've launched is we have a We've been working with many people who are applying biomimicry to the social innovation space, but now on our new website, we're lifting those folks up. So if you want to know more about other people and how they're applying biomimicry to social innovation, please go to our website. It's www.bsisocial.org. And you can learn more there about our workshops. You can learn about the nature positive practices and get uh, signed up so that we tell you when they're launched. You can learn about our practitioners network. And we're hoping that over time, the practitioners network will, will become more involved with the nature positive practices and we will be available for people to engage with on a Zoom call or or through social media platforms as well. Um, yeah. Oh, there's one other thing. I'll just give a little yeah. teaser on that I'm very excited about. I, I can't say too much about it because it's not official yet. But we've been in dialogue for over a year now with a with a big foundation, and we should know within the next month that it looks like they are going to provide us with a quite a large grant, a two year grant, to just as we did with the mutualism strategies. We want to go deep into studying nature's lessons on trust building, because one of the one of the things that you know underlies all of our work trying to build a better world is trust, especially in these times. Right, we're so divided. We're trying to learn how to work across difference. How does nature create and maintain trust? So we will be going deeply into the biology and translating nature's lessons into tools and frameworks that leaders can use, and also gathering a cohort of a learning cohort of folks who are working in the field who want to um, go deeply into learning this work as well, 
because it behavior change is hard and learning biomimicry takes some focus. So those folks will be coaching and supporting them and pra- helping them practice and implement these lessons over the course of a year. And we're building a we're um, creating a documentary film about it as part of the project. Short documentary so that others can learn these trust building frameworks, also how you do biomimicry and practice for social innovation, learn some case studies about it. So we are very excited about that project and that should be launching this fall. Well, that's very exciting, Toby. And I want to thank you so much for this conversation. I'm really fascinated with biomimicry and I am so grateful that you were able to unpack some of that for us, especially with your great examples and how you've been able to create so much with your organization. I always like to ask my guests if there is another woman or women, environmentalist or not, who inspire you or who have inspired you. Could you please share with us who that might be? Oh my goodness, what a great question. Boy, my mind is just flooding with people from, you know, everyone from Rachel Carson back in the day to um, indigenous leaders that I've had the privilege of working with, um, so many. But I think if I were to if I were to essentialize it, particularly in the biomimicry work, I just I have to lift up my my teachers, Janine Benyus and Dana Baumeister, who are the co-founders of Biomimicry 3.8, and really the they brought biomimicry in its in its modern form into into our world in a way that has just grown into a huge movement. Both are biologists. Um, Janine is a is a writer and. She wrote the book Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, and she just has such a beautiful mind of being able to connect things that that we wouldn't maybe so easily connect. And then once we see it, we say, oh, of course. And she's actually working on her new book now, which will go deeply into these deep patterns. I'm so excited for it to come out. Many of the things that she's drawing from have to do with social innovation. And of course, Dana Baumeister, who's been partnering with Janine from the beginning, she started the master's degree program at Arizona State University. I'd say she's the world's best biomimicry teacher, and I have the immense good fortune and privilege to partner with her in our workshops and in the biomimicry professional certification program and as a friend and a, and a colleague and a co-conspirator. So I would lift those women up, and I, and I feel like to have mentors and inspiration that are people that you walk the path with is yeah. just such a blessing. Thank you again, Toby. I so appreciate the work you're doing. You know, if I could add just one more piece to that inspiration, um, the other inspiration I would take are all the young women of color who are joining our workshops and who are saying, we need this in our communities. This We have a Living Systems Leadership Retreat for Women coming up in September, and it's, I think, 60% BIPOC. What? And we have um, women from the age of 25 to the age of 77. We always try to put together very diverse groups. So if you're interested in learning biomimicry in a setting that also creates relationships and trust across race and age and backgrounds, um, check out our, our workshops. All right. We'll, check, we'll actually be posting links to your website on our, on our site. So Terrific. Thank you so much, Michael, for all that you're doing and for leading in this work and lifting up um, everybody who's doing great work around climate solutions and making our world a better place. Really appreciate you. Thank you. And with that, we conclude another inspiring episode of Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. 
We're immensely grateful to our guests who have shared their expertise and solutions for climate change. Remember, it's through collaboration and collective action that we can make a difference. Let's continue to support and uplift each other on this journey towards a sustainable future. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to hearing more stories from unique women working on climate change solutions. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are now a 501c3 and gratefully accept your donations to keep us going. Remember to stay passionate and keep envisioning a better world.